Sometime in the late 50s or the early 60s of the first century, a Jewish Christian named John Mark was the, became the first person ever to write a full-length theological biography of Jesus of Nazareth. We've come to know this book as the Gospel according to Mark. Uh, Matthew's Gospel is first in its placement within the order of New Testament books, but Mark's Gospel is almost certainly the first Gospel written. We know very little of the man John Mark. We do know he was a Jewish Christian and that his mother Mary owned a house in Jerusalem. In fact, in Acts chapter 12, some of the believers of that city were meeting for prayer in her house when the Apostle Peter was miraculously released from prison. So Mark was involved with the church in Jerusalem from a very early stage. We also know that before Mark wrote his gospel, he traveled to Cyprus on a preaching mission with the Apostle Paul and his cousin Barnabas, but that he left them halfway through the journey, returning to Jerusalem. Paul was not impressed. And so he refused to take Mark along on his second missionary journey around 50 AD. However, the two men were reconciled. We know that Mark stayed with Paul during the apostles' imprisonment in Rome and that he served as a delegate on an important mission to Asia Minor. We just don't know any of the details of their reconciliation. We also know from the Bible that when the apostle Peter wrote his first epistle, Written from Rome around 62 AD, Mark was with him. And we're also told from reliable early historical documents that it was the Apostle Peter, a man who had lived with Jesus for three years, who had heard all of his teachings, had witnessed all of his miracles, who saw him transfigured on the mountaintop, saw his resurrected body, witnessed his ascension into heaven. It was Peter who served as Mark's primary historical source. And so we could almost call this book the gospel according to Peter. Now, anybody who goes about the trouble of writing a book, they have to have a purpose, right? Uh, Perhaps they want to entertain people, uh, fool people, enlighten people. Perhaps they want to make money or feed their artistic ego. John Mark wrote his book to help his readers understand who Jesus is, and what real discipleship to Jesus looks like. That's why Mark wrote his gospel. He's answering those two questions, and you're going to hear that again and again and again throughout this whole sermon series. Who is Jesus, and what does real discipleship to Jesus look like? So, when we ask, who is Jesus, and then we turn to the prologue, the first 13 verses of Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the first thing he says. Then he is the son of God. He is the Lord. He is more powerful than John the Baptist, the one who both gives and receives the spirit of God, the chosen one who has come to do battle with the powers of evil, who has angels at his side. That's all in the first 13 verses. And every human being on the face of the planet must believe those things and live accordingly. Who is Jesus? Friend, perhaps you've come here today 
with that very question burning in your heart. Who is Jesus? If so, may the first thing God's Spirit reveal to you through his preached word this morning is that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verse 1 of Mark 1. He begins, the evangelist begins, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. All right. Let's say every person here suddenly took it into their heads to write the definitive biography of Abraham Lincoln. It could be anybody. We'll just say Abraham Lincoln. Uh, But even though we're all writing about the same historical figure, each of our books is going to be quite different, right? No no two books are going to be the same. We each have our own personalities, our own interests, prejudices, perspectives, cultural baggage, and research and writing abilities. That's going to color what we write and how we write it. So, we'll leave certain details of Mr. Lincoln's life in our account because they suit our purpose. And we'll leave other details out because they don't. Each book is going to have its own slant on the man. Now, if we're being good historians, all the information that we convey to our readers will be historically accurate. All the historical details shared in our mutual biographies of the man aren't going to contradict each other, yet no two books will be the same. You can see where I'm going with this. In the same way, each gospel writer has a unique perspective that he brings to the composition of his book, his gospel. He has his own purpose in writing his gospel. He has his own portrait of Jesus he wishes to paint. Not a contradictory portrait compared to the other three, but a portrait with different emphases. We only have to look at the openings of each gospel to see that. John 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Bam! Right out of the gate. The eternality, triunity, and divinity of Jesus in the first sentence. On the other hand, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy that I would bet most of us probably skim at best when we're reading it in our devotions before proceeding with the virginal conception and birth of Jesus. John John and Mark don't even have a birth narrative. Luke begins his account with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the miraculous conception of their son, the last Old Covenant prophet, John the Baptist. And Mark, he begins his gospel with the ministry of John the Baptist when Jesus is already 30 years old. Those are all stylistic, editorial, theological choices that the authors made after interviewing witnesses, compiling their notes, But every word that they finally write down upon the page as they use their own vocabulary and their own style is breathed out by the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. Now when we read that word beginning, what does that remind us of? What, what uh, biblical association does that jog in our minds? Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, John the Apostle picks up on the same thing too in his opening verse. This association is very deliberate. For, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the universe. The beginning of what? Of the good news. 
about Jesus, the Messiah. Mark's telling us that in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. A new creation bound up with the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, God's anointed one. If you would, I think something that can really help us understand this is we flip over to Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. I'm preaching Mark's gospel, not Luke. You're going to see as I go through this sermon series, it's, I'm going to be focusing mostly on the gospel of Mark. Um, but other texts can help us out. Mark, Luke 4, 16 to 21. Now, by turning to this text, I want to show us that God's good news of a new era in salvation history brought about by the ministry of Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, didn't just fall out of the decontextualized blue sky when Mark wrote this verse. God had been preparing his covenant people for this for centuries. What Mark writes in verse 1 has been prophesied 500 years before by Isaiah. And just as Isaiah 61 is the Old Testament background to Mark's use of good news in his opening verse... It's also the content, interestingly, of Jesus' first ever sermon in Luke's gospel, because he, which he preached after being anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. So let's just read Luke 4, 16 to 21. This gives us a lot of insight, I think. He, Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it. He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, that's Isaiah 61. That's the text behind Luke's, or behind Mark's opening verse. Verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Brothers and sisters, the coming of Jesus is the beginning of the fulfillment of the good news heralded by Isaiah the prophet. And what we read here in Mark 1, verse 1, is that the ball is rolling, the clock is ticking. Divine acts of good news previously announced by Isaiah the prophet have now arrived in the person of Jesus the Messiah. Everything we read in these opening 13 verses, our text today, somehow fulfills Old Testament prophecy or is the working out of a biblical type or is a realized Old Testament Promise. Mark's prologue is very Jewish territory. And it's essential to Mark that his readers see Jesus' public ministry as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic expectations. So, if we're going to understand the monumental, eternal destiny-shaping significance of Mark's prologue, then we need to blend our cultural horizons as 21st century Torontonians with the culture and the worldview of 1st century Israel, a culture that dramatically has been shaped by its possession of the very oracles of God, their Old Testament scriptures. God has disclosed himself to this people through his holy scriptures, and the entire nation lived in the hope that God would soon, soon fulfill his promises to them. And what Mark writes here is, now the time has come. God has fulfilled his promises in Jesus, his anointed one, his Messiah, his Christ. 
this long-anticipated, long-awaited-for figure who will represent the people of God, bring in the promised, glorious, eternal kingdom, and the age of the Spirit. It begins now. The ball is rolling. The clock is ticking. And this, of course, is precisely where God's old covenant people made their fundamental mistake, a mistake so terrible, they crucify the king for whom they've been waiting for centuries. They politicize, they militarize the office of the anointed one. This is very important to understand. Israel saw the Messiah as a mighty warrior, like King David, a man who would kick the Romans out of the promised land and reign from his royal throne in Jerusalem. That was the red letter day that they were waiting for. But God had revealed in his word that his Messiah would be a suffering servant as well as a royal king. The Messiah reigns from a wretched Roman cross and his vanquished enemies aren't Roman soldiers but sin and death and hell. Do you see what Mark's doing here? He's setting up his readers in his first verse for Jesus' crucifixion in chapter 15. Turn there with you, please. Mark chapter 15. You're going to see this, the contrast here. Mark 15, verse 26. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Which is probably the most ironic sentence ever written in all of human history. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Blind fools. Saving others is exactly what he's doing on that cross. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And of course, if Jesus did come down from the cross, he would be proving himself to be a false Messiah, a false Christ. The anointed one of Old Testament scripture is the suffering, obedient servant who gives his life as a ransom for many. So, I'll just ask one question for now. It's a simple question, but it gets to the heart of everything in this passage. And and to be frank, friends, heaven and hell hang in the balance. Friend, is this your conception of Jesus? What we're reading here now? Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the Christ. Let's move now to our second answer. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. Verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Another title. Now, this title, Son of God or God's Son, is a very flexible term in Scripture. Sort of like kingdom. Maybe you've noticed this. It, It means different things depending on the context. The Son of God or God's Son doesn't always apply to Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. That's probably where our minds go first. We read that verse and say, yep, He is the Son and there's God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And he's, it's, it's not saying that. 
our Lord Jesus is the eternal Son of God. That is true. But in the Bible, Israel as an entire nation is called God's Son. Famously, Hosea 11.1, 1, Out of Egypt I have called my Son. Israel. Right? And Jesus, we're going to see this, actually is Israel reduced to one person. But Jesus is the faithful Israel, though. Jesus is the faithful son that Israel never was. And this theme is teased out in Mark's gospel as the book progresses. In fact, we see it today at Jesus' baptism. Right? Jesus is Israel, reduced to one person. But as well, to add to the complexity of this term, the Davidic king, who prefigures the office of the Messiah. He's also called God's son. What do we read in Psalm 2.12? Kiss the son, or he will be angry. And Jesus is the Messiah. He is King David's greater son whose kingdom is eternal. Brothers and sisters, do you know that even we, even we are called God's sons of God if our behavior reflects the conduct of God the Father himself. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called, literally, sons of God. So we act like God when we're keeping peace. God's a peacemaker. When we, when we keep peace, we're acting like him. We're in God's family. We're his sons. But that way of speaking applies to Jesus, too. Jesus' perfect conduct, Jesus' perfect obedience shows the world his true paternity. God is his father. So being called God's son in this sense is a functional category. It's not biological. Jesus isn't God's son in the sense that Hercules is the son of Zeus. Rather, everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does is in obedience to his father. Everything God the father wants revealed about himself is revealed perfectly in his son Jesus. Perfectly. Jesus acts just like God. He is in God's family. He is God's son. But as we see in all four Gospels, it takes a while for the disciples to appreciate all that's entailed in designating Jesus God's son. And I think it's legitimate to actually read back a, full, a full-blown Trinitarianism into this line, too. But they don't see that yet. Not yet. But explaining this, unpacking this, is one of the major concerns of the Gospels. What kind of son of God is Jesus? That's something we'll be carefully considering in the weeks to come because this is just the setup. This, guys, this 13-verse prologue is the gospel of Mark in miniature. All these themes get unpacked. These are the themes, these are theology that the evangelist traces throughout the rest of the book. So if any point in the sermon today you feel a bit confused, if you didn't quite catch what I just said about Jesus being the Messiah or the Son of God, don't worry. <laughs> it's going to come up multiple times over the course of our series. We're going to nail it down. Who is Jesus? Answer number three. Jesus is the Lord. The third title now. We've gone from the Messiah, the Son of God, He is the Lord. Verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Let's imagine that his majesty, King Charles III, is going to pay Toronto a royal visit on a Commonwealth tour. Right, The day is coming, I'm sure. Wouldn't the entire world look upon our country's hospitality askance? 
if anything were to happen to His Majesty during His royal visit, anything which caused him discomfort. For instance, if you were to have a heart attack while navigating a massive flight of stairs at some reception or another, the whole world would say, Canada, what were you thinking? Making the elderly king climb all those stairs. What's wrong with you? So, to avoid just that sort of thing, lots of preparatory work goes on behind the scenes before a royal visit. Uh, The king's processional route his itinerary, that's all worked out months in advance. Nothing is left to chance. So there must be no embarrassing incidents as His Majesty is in his motorcade going down Young Street waving at the crowds, right? His Majesty must see no abandoned cars up on blocks as he's waving at all his people. The streets must be free of garbage. There must be no obscene graffiti. No strip clubs with bright flashing lights. A team of people, they go ahead And they prepare the way. They act as heralds in a sense. The king is coming. Here's what needs to change around here. John the Baptist, he acts as a herald for God's royal visit to Israel. God's royal visitation in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. And so John announces, prepare the way for the Lord, Israel. The Messiah is coming. Make a processional route. Make the road straight. We need to repent as a nation. We need to be a morally clean people on the day of his visitation. We need to clean up the trash and the graffiti in our hearts. The Lord himself is coming. Repent. It would be our own undoing if he were to come to his covenant people and see us living in the filth of unrepentant sin. You see, John's a preparatory figure. He prepares a people for God. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord. He is God. He created the universe. And he created you. And as I preach this sermon, I'm acting very much in the same capacity, I suppose, as John the Baptist 2,000 years ago. I'm warning us of God's imminent visitation. Now, if we don't clear the way and accept a constitutional monarch like King Charles III, nothing much is going to happen to us. Not so King Jesus. And when our Lord returns, he's going to consummate his eternal kingdom. When Jesus returns, he's coming with the sword of judgment in his hand. So we need to repent now, all of us, before it's too late. I'm not being dramatic. That's actually just a fact. We all need to clear out the trash in our hearts and enthrone the divine Jesus in his rightful place as the Lord of our life. Who is Jesus? Answer number four. Jesus is more powerful Than John the Baptist. John the Baptist serves an essential function in the plot line of the Bible. His ministry begins after 500 years of revelatory silence from God. For 500 years, there have been no prophets in the land. No one has heard the voice of the Lord. World superpowers have come and gone. The Medes, the Persians, the Greeks... Now the Romans are in power. 
And things look very much as if God's promises to Abraham have failed. Israel, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land God promised Father Abraham he would give his descendants as an an eternal inheritance is now just a backwater province in the Roman Empire. But suddenly, John the Baptist appears on the scene and the response is electric. At last, the Lord has raised up a prophet after half a millennium, someone who truly speaks on God's behalf to his covenant people. And what does he say? Repent. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I know that verse sounds confusing. But the point isn't that baptism provides forgiveness. It doesn't but rather the attitude of the person seeking baptism indicates a ready heart to which God responds by granting forgiveness. Verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sin. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Do you see what's happening here? There is a salvation historical awareness among the people in what they're doing by being baptized by John. They are consciously preparing the way for the Lord. They're making straight paths for him, which means they're repenting of their sin. On an individual level, certainly, one by one by one, but also on a corporate level, as the covenant people of God. The people of Israel are repenting of their sins in droves and being baptized by the first prophet raised up by God in 500 years. And they're doing so in anticipation of this coming figure. This one whom John says he is unworthy to stoop down and loosen the strap of his sandals. That's a job deemed too humiliating for even a slave to perform in this culture. So what's the big deal? Why is this coming one so great and so important? Answer number five. Because he is the one who both gives and receives the Spirit of God. Look at verse 8. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this, of course, speaks to a momentous event in the history of human salvation. We're so familiar with it now. To our shame, 2,000 years, this side of the cross, I think many believers take the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost for granted. But put yourself in the, in the sandals of these Jews, all right? The Messiah, whose coming is just around the corner. These Israelites are repenting of their sin, and they're being baptized in anticipation of His advent. The Messiah is going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit, thus inaugurating a new age. And when John says that, Every Jew who knew their Bible 
was thinking of Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. If you own your own Bible, this might be a really, really good text, I think, for you to underline. Um, This is one of the major new covenant promises that we have back in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I'll read it to you. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, Israel would have assumed that God uses the coming of the Messiah to pour out his spirit. Because in the Old Testament, the bestowal of the Holy Spirit is a prerogative belonging exclusively to God. And the Messiah is just a man. That's how they've been thinking. After all, God, it's God here speaking, right? In Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove your heart of stone. I will put my spirit in you. But John the Baptist, he transfers the bestowal of the spirit to Jesus. Once again, indicating that Jesus possesses the power and prerogatives of God himself. Jesus is the Lord God. There is no doubt. Only God can pour out the Holy Spirit. But Jesus doesn't just give the Holy Spirit. Jesus also receives the Holy Spirit. Folks, I realize that this sermon is on the heavy side. Um, there's There's a lot of big theological concepts with almost every single verse and, and all of it with roots in the Old Testament scripture. And again, this is teaching that Mark is going to unpack for us later, chapter after chapter. But I want us to pray the Lord would keep our minds sharp and our hearts receptive to the truths I'm preaching. The salvation historical necessity all right, of Jesus himself being anointed by the Holy Spirit. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all make it clear that Jesus receives the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Why? Why is that such a key moment? Hang on to that thought. Verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't baptized because he has sins to repent of like the rest of the people do. What he's doing, rather, is he is identifying himself with Israel. There's a national corporate element to John's baptism. And Jesus, very humbly, is identifying himself with his covenant people. Because Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the faithful Israel. Jesus is Israel reduced down to one person. Verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. This is so important. The Spirit descending upon Jesus at his baptism is what makes him the Christ. It's what makes him the anointed one. Christ means anointed one, Messiah. And if we focus on the power of Jesus as he ministers upon the earth, then we must conclude from Scripture 
that his power during his earthly ministry is a, is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. The Gospel writers, Luke in particular, take great pains to show us that during his earthly ministry, the Son ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just read you some text to support that. You don't have to turn there. This is important because it underpins everything moving ahead. Luke 4.1 Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, where he has just been baptized by John, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Luke 4.14 Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He actually takes the time to write that out. And then Jesus preaches his first sermon four verses later. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Acts 10, 37 to 38. The Apostle Peter. He says, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And in Matthew 12, 28, a very interesting text, Jesus disavows personal causation of his miracles, attributing them instead to the Holy Spirit. But if it is by the Spirit of God, I cast out demons, by the Spirit of God, I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He denies personal causation. It's the Holy Spirit. And John tells us in 334 that Jesus received the Spirit without measure. Jesus' power during his earthly ministry is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God, thus fulfilling messianic prophecy that the Lord's anointed would minister in the power of God's Spirit. And now with verse 11... We come to one of the most sublime moments in all human history. God the Father speaks to his anointed Son from heaven. A voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. The Bible teaches us that there is one God... But he is the one God who eternally coexists in three co-equal persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And at this moment in Mark 1, we have a unique picture of this truth. The eternal Father speaks from heaven. The beloved Son rises up from the waters of baptism And the anointing Holy Spirit comes upon the Son like a dove. Brothers and sisters, this isn't some raw spectacle of Trinitarian majesty for its own sake. This scene is being played out on the banks of the Jordan. This scene is directed towards a purpose, a great purpose. This is the good news of chapter 1, verse 1, being put into effect. This is it. Here we have the triune God of heaven entering his fallen, warped, sinful, rebellious creation, working to secure the salvation of his covenant people. 
God the Father sends his beloved Son. God the Son, in obedience to his Father, incarnates. He becomes flesh. And God the Holy Spirit anoints the Son, in whose power the Son will vanquish Satan. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. God never spoke like that to any prophet. Abraham may have been a friend of God. Moses may have been a servant of God. Aaron may have been a chosen one of God. And David, a man after God's own heart. But only Jesus is God's beloved son. With Jesus' baptism comes the divine confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king. And he is the suffering servant. God the Father attests to this. God the Holy Spirit attests to this. Now, what Jesus' task will be, how he will deliver, those questions are the rest of the Gospel of Mark. It just takes a whole time to unpack it. But the emphasis here, brothers and sisters, is that heaven has spoken. Heaven has spoken. The persons of God the Father... And God the Holy Spirit have revealed their choice to the world. God has shown the world who will accomplish his plan. And having received the Father's verbal confirmation and the Spirit's anointing, Jesus can prepare for his public ministry. He launches out actively exercising the divine authority and divine power he possesses. But Satan is waiting. Who is Jesus? Our final answer. He is the chosen one who comes to do battle with the powers of evil, who has angels by his side. Verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Following the baptism, the Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness. The Spirit, who empowers the Son for ministry, now tests him to determine whether he will use his divine sonship for his own advantage or to submit himself in obedience to God the Father. Because Jesus is not an automaton who is programmed to obey. He is a man who has desires and choices of his own. The temptation period Jesus undergoes in the wilderness is real temptation. And his temptation Jesus must confront and resist in his human nature. Jesus, like all human beings, must choose to make God's will his own. And in this 40-day trial in the wilderness, Jesus is again, just like his baptism, Israel reduced down to one person. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years and they failed to obey God. Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days, but he overcomes. He overcomes. And not only now is Jesus ready to enter into his public ministry. In his faithful, unswerving focus on the Father, our Lord shows himself capable of representing humanity in a way that an earlier son of God, Israel, had failed to do. John the Baptist has pointed the way. 
God has opened the way and the devil has failed to block the way. And so Jesus embarks on his mission to secure the salvation of his people. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord, more powerful than John the Baptist, the one who both gives and receives the Spirit of God, the chosen one who comes to do battle with the powers of evil, who has angels at his side. Amen.